Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Family Law Podcast brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. This week we're talking about conduct, specifically that rare form of conduct that qualifies as gross and obvious, and in the words of Section 252G Matrimonial Causes Act 1973, inequitable to disregard. Conduct has come to the fore recently in two cases, TT and CDS, now reported as Rothschild and D'Souza in the Court of Appeal, and OG and AG, a first instance decision of Mostyn Jay, in which he seeks to classify four categories of conduct. To shine a light on this thorny and often misunderstood issue, I'm joined by Maria Henty of Pump Court Chambers. Maria is a homegrown pump courtian specialising in family law. In particular, and fortunately for us at Podcast HQ, Maria has a particular aptitude in financial remedies. She has experience with a full range of cases, with experience right up to high net worth cases when she, along with myself, spent last summer advising in-house at a boutique specialist firm. Maria is known to be a committed and formidable advocate with particular skill at unravelling an opponent's case through cross-examination. Maria, welcome. How's things? Morning, Mark. All good here. Thank you very much. Excited for this, uh, for for this kind... conduct chat? Yes, and thank you for the kind introduction. Ah, it's all right. It's all right. We try and, we try and be <laughs> nice to people that give up their time. Um, so... I, I, I want to start with the really, really bleeding obvious. Um, when we say conduct, what do we actually mean? Well, Mark, if we look at the basic question on one's form E, it, it, it's found slightly under the box for the contributions, which is always filled in. If we move down to section 4.4, um, the box says as follows, and it is a warning, bad behaviour or conduct by the other party will only be taken into account in very exceptional circumstances when dealing with how assets should be shared after divorce. If you feel it should be taken into account in your case, identify the nature of the behaviour or the conduct below. Uh, and I think that's a really good place to start because it couldn't be a more <laughs> stark warning uh, when you're filling out a form E as to are you going to plead this conduct uh, and if so is it really serious uh, and is it so serious that it would be inequitable for the court to disregard. Uh, you've already set out Mark the position within the Matrimonial Causes Act uh, and it's one of our section 25 factors, section 25g, the conduct of each of the parties, if that conduct is such that it would be in the opinion of the court being inequitable to disregard it. Uh, and that, as you said, starts from the basis of old case law when they were looking at conduct that was obvious and gross. Uh, and now uh, we've seen uh, in the last 20 years or so uh, development of that into defining categories of conduct. But as ever, it's all going to be highly subjective. My first sort of key point would be this, that it's very rare to have a case where the court's going to let you run a true and proper conduct argument. Mm. We see it pleaded all the time, but it's only going to be on a handful of occasions that that really gets out of the starting blocks. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, you, you know, you've given the warning in the for me, but it's probably rarer to find box 4.4 empty than, yes. uh, than completed. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's the issue. And perhaps one of the reasons why Mostyn goes on in 
OG and AG to set out some definitions of the type of conduct and to give stark warnings about litigation misconduct, perhaps in a bid to discourage conduct being pleaded and to encourage people to negotiate properly once they know the full facts of the case. Well, I, I, I was going to ask um, how, how, how is conduct sort of relevant to cases, but, but, but you mentioned Mostyn. So let's, let's, let's talk about OG and AG then. Um, what, what are those, those four classes of conduct that he tries to set out in that case? Mostyn sets out gross and obvious personal misconduct, add back jurisprudence, litigation misconduct and what we would call adverse inference but he calls it the evidential technique of drawing inferences. This isn't new because actually there's a a wealth of case law mark that comes after the case law that tells us it's got to be obvious and gross. So the obvious and gross, gross being defined as the most serious type of behaviour comes from cases from the 70s and 80s Jones and Jones, Hall and Hall and the like, where we're looking at really quite nasty incidents of assault, uh, stabbing, slicing husband and wife up with a razor, serious injuries that have an impact on parties' abilities to go to work. We then develop from there and end up with definitions of conduct such as marital conduct, financial conduct and litigation conduct. And it seems from there, that's where Mostyn is, is building to give us even tighter definitions and perhaps clearer examples of what the court would expect to see if someone was pleading that type of conduct. Do, do you think that that's, that's right? That the, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say whether Mostyn is trying to put a straitjacket on things or whether he's just trying to simplify matters by having classes. But do you think it's right that we can just put everything into one of four categories? It's helpful because it pushes parties in the right direction in terms of the remedies that would be available to them. And that is helpful in a system that is designed to encourage settlement. Because in terms of managing expectations, if you know that your remedy for litigation conduct is not going to be a great big departure from equality or a minimization of the other party's needs because of the way they've behaved. If you know that that's just going to result in cost consequences, then it will enable, hopefully, uh, a settlement uh, earlier on. Uh, and indeed, that was one of the criticisms of the wife in OG and AG was that she had quite rightly been <laughs> sinned against more than sinned, is, is the term Austin uses, but she had also failed by the time they had reached nearly the final hearing to engage in negotiations properly um, and had been entrenched in quite an unreasonable position because of how she had perceived the husband to have behaved. He had behaved really badly in terms of litigation conduct and there had been two aborted FDRs in that case. But uh, Mostyn was unwilling to change the division of what they did with the company to reflect that. And instead, what he did was, in terms of having made a cost order, uh, reflected both their behaviour in the cost order and actually gave the wife a a deduction for the way she had behaved once she knew the full financial landscape. 
So it is important in terms of setting out a direction for the case and understanding what you might get at the end of it, to put it bluntly. So, I, well, I, this is really what I was um, going to come on to. I mean, we, we can sort of, I, I think some of the categories are fairly simple. Litigation misconduct, you're either going to get um, a costs award or you're potentially still going to have a departure from equality as we saw in, in Rothschild and D'Souza recently that yeah. was upheld in the Court of Appeal. Um, so where do we start then? If we think we've got a conduct case, how do we say that's relevant to the outcome? Well, if we take the most simple form of conduct, which is the one that I suspect we see pleaded the most, which is marital conduct or personal misconduct or, or the gross and obvious misconduct, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's obvious. It's what the man in the street would recognise as bad behaviour. We know that it's not simply husband or wife had an affair. We know that it's not there was just some form of domestic abuse. I say just, I don't mean to belittle it, but we're in financial remedy proceedings. It's got to be something really offensive. It's got to have that gasp factor as we've seen defined before. But not only that, it's got to be really, really serious. And when looking at a remedy, the person pleading that type of conduct has to realise that it's not a moral judgment the court is making and it's not a punitive or confiscatory type of order. And it's the case of H&H, &H, 2005 case, uh, that essentially says if you plead that type of conduct, the other Section 25 factors will be viewed through the lens of that, but husband or wife doesn't get punished, mm. their needs don't get forgotten about, or their contributions don't get forgotten about just because they've behaved in this way. The obvious example is a case where perhaps a husband has um, been abusive towards a wife in such a serious way that she can no longer go to work. That has a clear financial consequence. And it's really only in those types of cases where you can see in a, in a monetary sense, the impact of this behavior that the court is going to be interested and uh, that there yeah. is a remedy that can be defined and pleaded and quantified. So it's partly, I mean, I, we're not creating new case law here, but in terms of a test, you've got the gross and obvious or inequitable to disregard, but you've also then got to show, well, how is this going to have an impact on the ultimate award, I suppose? Yes, essentially that. Would I, I would say... use the analogy of sort of pleading your losses in a personal injury case. You've got to show that essentially but for what the husband has done to the wife, she would have three, four thousand pounds more a year by way of income or I, whatever. I, I suppose it's that it's that marital conduct or whatever we want to call it that, that's the hardest to put a figure on then, isn't it? I think that... so. And the big problem is always going to be ensuring that clients and the court are not distracted by the facts. Because quite often, if it's really serious, if it's murder, attempted murder, really serious harm, child abduction, you're going to have the factual matrix established by the criminal courts but to that highest standard of proof. That doesn't need investigating again 
but what you need to know is what is the impact of that and can it be quantified in a way that's helpful within matrimonial um, finance cases okay so we've got that's the sort of marital conduct and like you say h and h is an excellent example of the the level of conduct that that really qualifies but in terms of other types um we've got the ad back um case so what in those in that situation what what do we need if we're running that to, to final hearing so this is the financial misconduct or the ad back conduct and what the court's looking at there is really that a party, one party shouldn't be able to fritter or destroy the family assets. One party shouldn't be able to put the other party's resources in jeopardy. And again, it, it's not simply someone going off and buying a Range Rover when they separate. It, it's got to, it's got to have an impact on the resources that are going to be available to meet that other party's needs. And perhaps the, the most uh, obvious case of where there's a bit of shock and horror because of the facts but the court went on to say no this isn't ad back conduct um, is what Miss Justice Moore said in MAP and MPF which was with the £250,000 worth of strippers and cocaine and that not amounting to wanton dissipation or, or reckless conduct in terms of dissipating family resources because in that instance, the court found that husband hadn't spent those funds to deliberately deny the wife her claim. He just spent those funds because he was a flawed individual. And again, it comes down to managing client expectations. The husband or wife may be absolutely furious that the other party's gone off and blown £250,000 on strippers and cocaine. But if it doesn't have a material impact, material impact on the direction of the case and the assets that are available if it's not been done to deliberately deny the other side their chunk of the pot then is the court really going to be interested in it but I think that's the the interesting thing isn't it is looking at it in the context of the case in the context of the assets that are in play because we often see some of these I suppose especially the ad back one is most noticeable in a lower asset case because that's when someone's spending even 20, 30,000 pounds unnecessarily yeah. really, really bites. Um, yeah. But it's those kind of cases where it's just almost impossible to run. Again, it, it does really depend on the facts of en- every individual case. And we, again, we do see it in these lower value matters when actually, as you're right, that, that 20, 30 grand that they spent on a safari or, or a Range Rover could have been the difference in the other side buying a house with a mortgage that can meet the children's needs or or not being able to buy a house at all. Uh, And it's in those cases where the court is scratching its head for where do I get the money from? It's not there to add back. Where the parties don't have the funds to litigate in the first place, that you're left wondering, well, why are we even bothering to set this up at FDA? to gain this information? Why are these questions even being asked on the questionnaire? And again, it's difficult to manage parties' expectations because obviously if someone has gone and blown 50, 60,000 pounds in a case where there's only 600,000 available between them, for example, um, they're going to be feeling very, very aggrieved. But as we've all said to our clients in conference, if the money's not there, the money's not there. Yeah, and it's it's, it's interesting 
tension, as you said earlier about um, H&H and the court viewing the other Section 25 factors through the prism of, of the conduct if it's established. And we know from case law that a conduct award can take a party below their needs potentially, but but not necessarily putting them in a predicament of real need. So there's no situation seemingly where the other side are just going to be completely ignored because of conduct. I entirely agree. And I, I've had in the past clients with gambling problems who've spent the majority of the, the marital pot before we've reached FDR or final hearing. And one of the difficulties at FDR on those types of cases, whether you're for the person who's been wanton with their spending or for the other side, is grappling with the idea that the court is not going to punish the person with the gambling addiction who's blown all the cash um, for the sake of it. And that's much akin to the court's stance with the marital or the personal or the gross or obvious misconduct. It's not about deducting a penalty. Mm. And the reality is the majority of cases before the court are going to be focused on needs. And those needs are not going to be changed by someone dissipating assets. The question is, what on earth do you do when there's nothing left? Mm. And that's an issue that one has to confront um, on a case by case basis. Because I think was it was it in MAP I think where where they effectively said well you know you you take the person as you find them and yeah you, you know the, the, you're happy to reap the rewards of their clever investment career or whatever but but the other the flip side of the coin is, is that they have a proclivity for cocaine and prostitutes yeah I, and in that case Mr Just Moore said well that is a problem with highly successful people they often are highly flawed as well mm. and it's exactly that you know if you're going to reap the benefits you also place yourself at a level of risk wife as well um it, it's it's a good case in the sense that it's quite alarming in terms of the figures and also <laughs> uh, the conduct itself but it, it certainly highlights how reluctant the court is to step in and punish but from mm. a practitioner's perspective that in itself is very difficult to portray to clients, particularly when there are no other remedies elsewhere. In cases of wanton dissipation, it's unlikely that they'll have any redress in any other area of law. I suppose it is the only thing to, to sort of note is with all these cases that it's, it's big money cases and trying to yeah. potentially apply those principles to a case is with, as you said, say 600,000 net is is really hard because I, I I can't remember was it about three and a half four million or something in MAP um, small fry by the the high court standards but still uh, there's enough money to make sure yeah. that everyone's in a house um, yeah and it is it is just different to those cases that we have no totally and if you look at what Mostyn says in OG and AG they've spent a million pounds on their legal fees. That, that's not that's not real life for the majority no, of people no. uh, and that is the big problem with these cases is that they the only people who can afford to take cases to the court of appeal within financial remedies are, are the millionaires mm. the multi-millionaires in fact I, I thought it was quite interesting in the Rothschild case to see almost the resurgence of um ad back jurisprudence but in this litigation conduct mm. um kind of conduct where where 
they're effectively saying money spent on costs is money that's not then available for rehousing. And so it, it should lead to a, a departure from equality. I thought that was quite, rather than just punishing it in costs order, I think that's quite an interesting way of looking at it and something that, that even in smaller money cases could be worth doing if you get someone that, that unnecessarily spends huge amounts of legal fees, the impact's probably even more stark at that level. Yes, and what, and what was interesting in um, TT and CDS was that it, it came across as if Mr Just Kern had a huge amount of sympathy for the wife, um, but equally doesn't put her in... Well, I mean, she's, she's left in a good position, but she doesn't walk away with everything. And again, I mm. think that is a, a key take-home message, that this husband behaved appallingly in that case, and what he did with the children clearly sets the tenor for the rest of even the financial remedies judgment, uh, but he still walks away with an ability to set up a business in the future and property uh, and not a huge punishment. I mean, he ends up with a cost liability, but it, it could have been much worse. Mm. And I think that is a clear indication as any that this isn't punitive. Yeah. Um, well, let's just sort of go back to the beginning then just to, as a sort of final point um you're at the beginning of the case you're at your you've got your you're in your con pre first appointment what is it what's the what are the essential ingredients that you're looking for to establish a conduct case then if we're looking at the personal misconduct or, or the financial misconduct so the, the, the dissipation misconduct you've got to plead that early on and you've got to on your form e make it really clear what you're saying the implication of mm. that is on your your needs case essentially um if it has no impact really got to be asking yourself why am i pleading this is it because i've got a client who feels seriously aggrieved by the other side if so fine plead it but don't take it past the fda mm. don't waste the money on conduct statements or gathering evidence because what is the point to put it bluntly mm. manage what, expectations early on i suppose it says it, it is really pointing to that need to know your case and have a very clear strategy right from the outset even before yeah. before issue really or at least on mm. on exchange of form z i think the, the 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 marital conduct the gross and obvious conduct you really have to plead it tightly and you're going to be in a better position if there is a factual matrix already established perhaps through criminal or, or, or other civil proceedings but you've still got to prove that loss and you've got to know where you're going to get the evidence for that from is it a gp letter is it from occupational health is it from here are six CVs and six rejections? Whatever it is, you've got to know where you're finding that evidence and what you're going to be asking for at FDA. If it's the wanton dissipation type conduct, again, where are you finding that evidence? Do you have the bank statements that show husband withdrawing £100,000? If you do, what are you going to be asking him in your questionnaire about how that's being spent. What evidence do you want to see from him? If he's given it to your daughter and put it in an account for her, what are you going to do about that? Being one step ahead of the types of arguments that would be run at final hearing by the person defending that. You haven't shown that I took that money. You haven't shown how I spent it. 
you can't prove your case. I think sometimes what gets forgotten in family proceedings of all types is that the person asserting or pleading is the person who needs to prove mm. the, the point. And I have had that in a conduct case where it was rather assumed by the husband that he would just say, the wife has led me down the garden path and lost me money through poor investments. That is essentially he was running a, a dissipation argument, but he produced no evidence in effect to back that up and he couldn't prove it. Mm. All that could be proved was that in fact they'd gone on and made these investments together. Uh, and so it was seen as something for the benefit of the family, uh, a bit like um, your cocaine and strippers case. Yeah. You, you were in for the benefits as much as you were in for the risk. Yeah. I mean, we, we haven't, um, just drawing to a close, uh, we haven't talked really about the adverse inferences mm. line of conduct, but I mean, that's probably a, for another day. We've got Moher and Moher recently in the Court of Appeal, which sets out the latest guidance. Um, but I suppose yeah. it's it's the same points, isn't it, that you need that you need some kind of evidence if you're going to say this guy's hiding assets over abroad uh, overseas sorry you, you've got to have something to give the court to to pin that finding on you have and, and i wonder with the adverse inferences really that whether that needs a separate head of conduct mm. in Mostyn's four-point uh, conduct schedule because actually it's something that rears its head really regularly and is run without proper pleadings quite often but still is taken into account and sometimes it develops as the case moves on in a sort of natural and organic mm. fashion that is less concerning in terms of having to plead it from the off because it, it, it arrives almost naturally i think what will be an area to watch mark is litigation misconduct and what happens on the back of the new practice direction 28a and paragraph 4.4, because what Mostyn says in OG and AG is that at paragraph 31, it's important I enunciate this principle loud and clear. If once the financial landscape is clear, you don't openly negotiate reasonably, then you will likely suffer a penalty and costs. This applies whether the case is big or small and whether it's being decided by reference to needs or sharing. I, I think that's a key mm. point to end on really today because that seems to have relevance, whatever the case is about, whatever the, the available pot is. Uh, and it seems to be a message that is coming loud and clear from recent changes in practice directions and guidance, uh, and then from Mostyn himself in this recent case. Well, we, we would look forward to seeing further examples of hopefully people negotiating a bit more openly. Um, I regret to say that, that it would appear that is all we have time for. I, I think to continue longer would be inequitable, certainly on the brilliant Maria, whose precious time I've sequestered. Um, Maria, thank you so much. It's been really, really interesting. Um, as ever, if there are any requests for topics, we do our best to accommodate them or indeed any feedback generally. Mine and Tara's emails are on the Chamber's website. For now, thank you for joining and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.